As a training professional, your job is to effectively manage the business of learning. You probably listen to this podcast to gain insights on L&D trends being used by some of the most innovative thought leaders in our market. But did you know that training industry also provides data-driven analysis and best practices through our premium research reports? Our entire catalog, including reports on topics such as deconstructing 70-2010, women's access to leadership development, learner preferences, and the state of the training market, just to name a few, can be found at trainingindustry.com slash shop research. New insights create new ways for L&D to do business. Let training industry research reports assist you in taking your learning initiatives to new heights. Go to trainingindustry.com slash shop research to view our entire catalog. Welcome to the Business of Learning, the learning leaders podcast from training industry. Welcome back to the Business of Learning. I'm Sarah Gallo, Senior Editor here at Training Industry. And I'm Michelle Eggleston-Schwartz, Editor-in-Chief. In today's episode, we're diving into a crucial topic for all learning leaders, learning reinforcement. We'll be discussing how to deliver sticky learning programs that drive real behavior change, and as a result, lead to better business outcomes. With us, we have Elena Agar, a Talent Development Specialist, Author, and Podcaster, and Rachel Wallerstein, a certified professional in training management and senior manager of learning and talent development for the AIDS Foundation of Chicago. Elena, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes, welcome. Thanks for being with us here today, Elena and Rachel. To get started, I think it would be really helpful if you could each share your own definitions for learning reinforcement. So in other words, what does it really mean to make learning stick? I just have a short definition that I is like a working one for me, where I'm always thinking about learning reinforcement as both providing opportunities for the repetition of the content and also integration into the working environment or working conditions that someone is in. So I'm a little bit of a, a constructionist in that regard. Yeah, and just to pick up on that, for me, I see it as like, how can we intentionally, strategically incorporate what people are learning into the day-to-day? So I focus a lot on actually working with managers to make sure that they are helping their team incorporate it intentionally. I think that's what I see as like the biggest missing piece in learning reinforcements. And so for me, I focus a lot on the manager, like how are managers making sure that this happens? Definitely that intentionality. I like that piece, being intentional about the training and and kind of all the steps that follow. Why do you think it's so important for busy learning leaders to prioritize learning reinforcement efforts? Well, just bottom line is otherwise it's just a waste of time. <laughs> otherwise you're wasting time and money, right? And 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 resources and and furthermore, not to be extreme, but at the end of the day, it will depend on whether your business survives or not, is how much your people are learning, unlearning, growing. And if you're not prioritizing that as a leader, you're potentially putting your, your business at risk as well. Yeah. The first thing that always comes to mind is like, why would you invest the time and resources, right? Especially the time, because time in the nonprofit space is perhaps one of our most precious commodities. But one of the other things I think about when you ask this question is, Training and development opportunities, especially for people engaged in knowledge work, really matter because you're, especially now with 
the way AI is giving us opportunities to improve on the delivery of rote tasks, right? Things that can be easily repeated. Really precious skills are going to be problem solving, curiosity, right? These things that help you look at the broader system of the problem in order to work through it. And so aside from why invest if you're not going to dedicate the time to it, there's this element of, of providing space and, and time for those metacognitive shifts, right? The metacognition of how do I work? How are the ways in which I'm working need to adjust given the continuously changing landscape of the work that I'm doing? It's not just <laughs> in for-profit industries where the pace of change is really rapid. In nonprofits, we're also looking at how the political climate changes our ability to deliver services to our priority communities, how funding processes really slow down what we're able to do sometimes, alter what we are allowed to do at times. So there's all of these other kinds of constraints where you have to be able to sit back and look at the larger system. And I find learning and development opportunities to be incredible spaces for providing low stakes practice in doing that in problem solving so that when you're in those high stakes moments it's not so scary to think well what if we tried this instead you know mm. yeah kind of preparing for those moments that matter is key i love that well, I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners too to kind of hear about your own experiences firsthand on how you've both worked to deliver training that sticks throughout your careers in L&D. Can you share a little bit more about that? I kind of been doing a lot of research and experimentation with something that's not exactly something we think about automatically in L&D, but I am a fun fact, I'm a personal trainer for fun on the side. And so in my work as a personal trainer, I've actually, on, on, on my own consultancy work, I've, I create programs that are combining career development and performance and like your physical and mental performance, essentially. And through this research and just implementing with my clients and, and in the space that I work now with the company, I've seen that there's this thing we don't talk about, which is the basic of like, how do we feel as like on daily basis? How are our energy levels? our mental state, our physical state, how well we sleep, what we eat, what we drink or don't drink and so on impacts how we show up in a workplace. So just overall talk about performance. So something I've done this summer at Horizon where I work at the moment is we've implemented a summer of well-being and we covered all different aspects of well-being. So everything that we've done from learning development units, activities, initiatives, social gatherings was around physical and mental well-being. And what we've seen is actually people, um, so we do like happy hours for social stuff. And this summer we did hikes and we did physical activities and we did games to stimulate the mind and so on. And that's been really impactful to see that one, people really enjoy that. So more people show up to that actually than our regular happy hours. But furthermore, people are starting to take care of themselves more because they felt like, okay, like if you're not a person who typically, let's say, goes for a walk and the company is doing like, hey, let's do a morning walk before we go into our meeting, for example. That actually has been really beneficial on an individual level, right? People see more energy levels and so on. And it sounds so basic and it sounds like, well, that, you know, should L&D do that? But I come from a perspective of if we want people to learn, we need to help them create space in their minds and environments and 
opportunities to be better at learning. And that starts with how you feel, how much you move, and being a leader in that space. And kind of, and this is what we work with managers as well as like, how are managers practicing that in the workplace to help others do the same? So not just like, hey, you have a gym membership, but how are you actually doing this in the workplace? How are you practicing? Because if you are performing well on a physical and mental level, you're much more able to then learn. Your well-being is overall like uh, just better, right? So that's something different that I've tried that's been pretty successful. I am such a big advocate for that kind of holistic approach. And that's, I love knowing that you were able to lead that. I agree with you. I certainly think it's not physical wellness, mental wellness is not outside the realm of learning and development practitioners because those are also important elements of creating safe environments at work. So kudos. I love it. Big fan. It's very similar to what I was thinking about with this question too, which is that technology interventions are not always the answer. If anything, they can actually muddy the water and create a little bit more chaos than is necessary. So similarly, I have been thinking very much so in the last year about what do supervisors need in order to feel like they can be the leaders of the learning initiatives, not me, because I'm a one-person team too. So it's not like I have the capacity to even do those one-on-one follow-ups or do team coaching. So instead, I make supervisor guides that provide for, especially organization-wide learning initiatives, that give them like a week-by-week breakdown of what should you talk about in your team meeting? What should you talk about with your direct reports in the one-on-one? How do you want to follow up? And they can be really small conversations like, hey, did you complete this portion yet? What did you think? Is there anything you want to talk about? To really structured conversations that they're facilitating, right? And giving them some of that set of tools that we have, we are facilitators as well. I also think to the example, Elena, you were giving, there's a lot of room to partner on those kind of holistic programs with HR or, and my role sits in HR, so that's why I think about it. But even some of the ERGs, so if you're an organization that has a staff group dedicated to mental wellness, getting them involved in some of that holistic intervention so people can get to a place where they feel good so they can show up to learn. I I think you don't need technology for that. You just need to communicate and ask. I love actually the point you mentioned about technology because I do agree sometimes it just complicates things, which is also like, let's just go back to the basics. Like, let's start with that because that is what we need. The reason we're, you know, in organizations, some of the struggles that, that we see is that people are overwhelmed. I'm in tech. I work for a small tech uh, firm. And m- what I hear from my colleagues and whether you're in tech or not, and just different, we're so overwhelmed. We have more information coming our way with, with generative AI. There's more to learn, more to do. And I feel like it's just like, calming all of that down by taking it to the basics that we we were discussing. Like that's, that's, I feel we don't give enough attention to, we focus so much on like all these other innovations and technology and like what tools can be used, but it's like, let's not forget about the basics, which often we forget about, which is the root of everything. Otherwise we're just slapping a uh, bandaid on a broken leg. I love that. I love the idea of taking this holistic approach and to employees and wellness and really help them to become better learners, as you said, Elena. And so kind of addressing all those different aspects that employees, when they come to the workplace and to help them be successful in their jobs and 
giving the supervisors those guides, like you mentioned, Rachel, is so important. I'd love to shift gears um, and talk a little bit about how technology can be helpful for learning reinforcement. Are there any particular ones that you found to be especially helpful? I do like technology sometimes. I don't mean to be a grouchy Luddite. We are fortunate enough that we do have LinkedIn Learning for our staff. And even if we didn't, I would have tried to leverage SharePoint or even our LMS as a self-choice library, right? What do I need to know right now? I think the challenge that maybe it's unique to the audience I serve, perhaps not, but the challenge that often comes up is even with a platform like LinkedIn Learning where they provide, and a number of, of these libraries do, right? They'll chunk the videos into short segments, right? You can complete a portion of the course in five, two to seven minute videos. And you should theoretically be able to pick and choose how many minutes you want to do throughout the day. There's still a challenge with conceptualizing learning in chunks. Even though the technology is providing you the framework, people are still looking at the course going, oh, there's an hour of learning I have to do. And I know there's a lot of conversation around other kinds of tools that support micro learning that will push out quick reminders and things like that. But I don't know if those interventions are still able to deliver the message that learning really doesn't have to happen in, you know, five hour chunks. It can happen in two minutes. It can happen in five. And I'm thinking, Elena, about what you were saying with folks in your organization who are tech workers, where they're inundated by information, by options. And so I don't know what the right solution is. I think there's many things to continue experimenting with. And a lot of that experimentation seems to be driven by the learner, not by us, right? So letting them kind of dictate, well, this actually does work for me. This isn't working for me so much. And then being thoughtful about how many options for them to experiment with that we are either pushing out or recommending. That's kind of the place I've landed in these days. In my work, we don't, unfortunately, aside from kind of similar to you, Rachel, like the LinkedIn learnings and different tools that are just the, the typical LMSs that are out there. Our team doesn't seem to be so into those. What they do enjoy, what's been working for us is anything where we can gamify something. They're all up for it. Uh, that's really fun. We also do a lot of peer learning and, and live sessions and peer, yeah. peer kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning that's been impactful. But what I hear other companies doing is, of course, with the virtual reality and depending on the industry that you're in, in tech, it's just a little bit different because we're, it's more of just like hands-on learning. So they're learning a technology, they're learning a new way to code, less, make less mistakes, but they're actually learning in the technology itself. So it's more hands-on in that space. But I don't know if you guys have heard about the AI pin that Humane is releasing, which I'm really excited about. So AI pin, it's basically a pin that's going to go right here. It's still priced at like $700 right now. So it's not going to be as affordable to many companies and individuals. But I see that this is going to be probably the next level of learning because this AI pin is essentially ChatGPT personal assistant all in one. That's going to be like right here. You can talk to it. It will track your tasks. It will give you on the spot answers about things you need to do. It will remind you of the learnings you've done. It's like a like this whole thing of, you know, the best of generative AI that we have so far in the small pin that is now accessible. 
I see that being really useful in learning in the future because it's so individualized. And I think that's the biggest thing when it comes to technology is how can we make it individualized to the person, make it relevant to them, accessible and affordable. Yeah. So many advancements coming out for sure. It can be overwhelming. So (laughs) our team I know is super dedicated to putting out resources that can help. And again, I love what you said, Rachel, too, about kind of partnering with your learners and just asking them, seeing what works, what doesn't work and kind of iterating together. I think that's super important and helpful. We'll be right back after a brief message from our sponsor. The Certified Professional and Training Management Credential, or CPTM, was designed to convey the essential competencies you need to manage a training organization. When you become a CPTM, you gain access to alumni resources like monthly peer roundtables and a full registration to the Training Industry Conference and Expo. If you start today, you can earn the CPTM credential in as little as two months. To learn more, visit cptm.trainingindustry.com. Well, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about creating a healthy learning culture across the organization. Rachel and Elena, what tips do you have for creating and also sustaining a thriving learning culture? Again, I'll go back to the the basics that, that, that I think is missed. Two things. One, ask your people actually what they want to learn. Like ask what do they actually want to learn versus trying to come up with different topics. And number two, Having that communication, like regular communication in general, in the communication, I mean the involvement of manager. Again, one of the biggest challenges I see, whether in the company I'm working with and and others that I hear from colleagues is in order for learning to be effective, not only do we need to create that safe environment, but also team members want to see their managers present with them in the learning. So that's a big thing. A lot of times managers will be like, oh, go take this learning. But then the manager themselves are not actually practicing that. So I think Having that system where the manager is present, not only does it allow for them to understand what the team members are doing and learning, whether they're interested in a topic or not, it's more of just like being there as a support, as a resource. But then furthermore, they can then make sure that that learning is enforced and reinforced. So I think when it comes to just creating that, it really starts with the manager. And this is the biggest challenge because managers usually are so busy and don't always see it as a priority, but then it goes back to the first point that we were talking about is what is why should we invest time and resources in this and having the buy-in of a manager and just a leadership team is essential versus just putting it on the bottom line and having this bottom top approach to learning i think needs to start from the top and needs to be maintained there people get excited about that right so i think just regular communication and having that manager presence and just asking what do people want to learn a thousand percent always have managers' leadership involved. We have a couple of different organization-wide things going on and also some small team select ones. And I invite all the supervisors all the time, all the way up to SLT. And when they're there, it's such a different conversation. And also different, I'm imagining, when they go back to their teams to talk about it. So I want to emphasize that. Incredibly important. The other thing that comes to mind, though, when thinking about what's needed for a robust learning culture is about a skill set and a set of practices that learning and development folks, I think, could spend some time investing in, which is trauma-informed pedagogies. 
the world is upsetting right now. And people come also from really different places. They come with different kinds of baggage to work, even if they do their best to leave it at home, whether it's virtual, hybrid, or in-person work, it, it doesn't matter. We all carry those things with us. And there are really small things that we can do to make safe places for learning. Many of them we already do, for instance, being thoughtful about our lighting when we are facilitating things that set up transparency and predictability for learners that are coming in with all kinds of stuff going on in their lives, whether that's personal or, or on a, a local or even global scale. I also think helping organizations get to a place where they're making time for the learners. So I have heard from our staff, they would love to see us pilot like professional development time, like scheduled company-wide. I know other places have done this really successfully, but people say they want the time. They don't know how to make the time. The pressure of the work to be done always precedes the desire to learn. And so just creating a community norm, we're going to learn today, can actually, I think, free up a lot of space cognitively, socially, et cetera, for people to start engaging in those behaviors that will eventually create that robust learning culture. Such great points and recommendations there. I do want to kind of piggyback on that question too and see if this looks any different in a virtual environment and with learning reinforcement specifically, how can we make sure that is effective for remote learners? Something that we do is, as I mentioned before, is the peer learning piece. And I think and I don't know, I don't know, Rachel, how you feel, but being the person who delivers the training, facilitates the training and all that, sometimes people just want to see a different face. <laughs> and so learning from one another tends to work really well with us. I also utilize a lot of external, external practitioners to come and deliver on a topic, you know, whatever topic they're uh, speak on. And um, so that's been really impactful because I think it's just given them diversity of people delivering the training, especially if you're like a one-woman show, for example, that's powerful. Peer learning has been super impactful. We do this thing where it's like a working group. So we have a working group for our tech talent and one person volunteers every month and they deliver a session about a really cool thing they've discovered in the world of coding, for example. <laughs> and so, and that seems to be very engaging and it's usually very high attended consistently over the years. Our techies love that. Something we do with the recruitment team is we do weekly learnings. Basically, each recruiter will kind of rotate and weekly discuss what can we do better as a recruitment team? What can we do different? They'll present research and really in small, like 10 to 15 minute information sharing. And then we discuss it, like, do we want to take action on it? Or is this something maybe we consider in the future? I think that helps a lot because it's, they're more engaged to begin with. They're interested. They're excited to be there. So they're mentally present there versus like, oh my God, here we go. Elena got another topic for us today. What, you know, it's so on. So they know that it's a peer delivering it or just somebody they're excited about. Nothing that's pretty standard, right? So it's, I think diversifying who delivers the training sets the tone for the training and learning a little bit differently. And so that, that's something that we've tried that works quite well. Yeah, peer learning is also where I've been focused for us as a hybrid space, especially with our supervisors. It's been productive to get them 
together so that they're seeing themselves also as a team of supervisors that they can turn to and rely on. So we do a monthly group, I call it the supervisor discussion group. And they come together, we talk a little bit about best practices, we leave some time to troubleshoot together, they can ask questions of one another. We also use it as a space to deliver any updates of, hey, don't forget to tell your team about this thing. For instance, open enrollment, <laughs> don't forget to remind them to enroll, that kind of stuff. And that's been very productive. The other thing that I'm working on that I heard about someone else doing is using Microsoft Teams to create channels for different kinds of roles. So I'm working out the final logistics of it, but the setup is straightforward enough on Teams just to create a space that's like right in their pocket or right on their desktop where they can share something they came across, right? Or ask a question or check in on something and really trying to better define what that particular tool is for because that is an important piece of the virtual or hybrid space too is if we're going to lean on the tools for communicating have we set up definitions for like which tool is for communicating what and sometimes that i think for a lot of places has been lost they're just like here's everything that you can communicate with bye <laughs> and that creates more chaos than it helps so trying to get teams to do what it's supposed to do, I think will be a really exciting experiment that I have no outcomes to report on yet, but it's something that I'll be launching in the next uh, couple of months that I'm excited to see what happens. Love that. Love hearing what you all are experimenting with. That's really exciting. As we know, um, engagement is crucial to training success. And I'd really love to hear what tips you have for creating engaging content that resonates with modern learners? For somebody who's been creating content for a while, I think I have tried so many different things, failed in many. <laughs> when it comes to in organizations, I think delivering trainings and content, if you were talking about an organization, right, versus like delivering for like an online audience or even all, virtual ones, but I think Mixing it up has probably been the most helpful in my work. And but what I mean by that is changing the type of contents, right? So part of it could be mixing up between a video, a discussion, a self-work, a question you throw out, a lecture. So mixing up all these things, being really great at storytelling. And actually, the, there's the whole art of facilitation in its own, right? So making sure you're not monotone. I think you can have great content, but the way it's delivered can be awful, right? Or the tools that you use can be super not user-friendly, or they can be really boring, or they can be really clunky. So I think just part of it is like the type of content you're creating, but then it's like, how are you actually delivering the content and the tools that you use? Keeping it as short as possible in terms of not, this is the mistake I've made. I, I would pack into a training, like a lot of different things, and it would just be too much. It's just too much. I'd get so excited as a facilitator to be like, oh my God, I just want to share all these things. And so on. But then you realize that the learner, that's not effective. They might be like, it might be super cool, but they won't retain that knowledge. <laughs> and we know the retention of knowledge post training is very, very low. After an hour and a week, they forget most of it. So I think personalize it and making it what I've also seen impactful is tying it. How is it going to benefit the individual? I've also noticed what really sticks with people lately when it comes to learning, just based on many topics is how can you 
show them how the brain works when it comes to certain topics. The newer scientific research that we have out there, right? Like the cognitive science that's out there, bringing that into a learning and a training has been impactful because people are like, oh, first, it's something new for a lot of people. And two, they start to understand why certain things are difficult versus easy, why learning is done in a specific way. So it's almost like educating about how we learn as well and personalize it to their experiences, I think has been also very powerful in my opinion. I am excited you said that. When I first started in my position, because it was a career change for me, I used to be a teacher, and I had wanted to do a session because the role was new for the organization on how we learn, and I couldn't get people at leadership level to say like, yeah, that sounds like a good use of your time. There were other directives that were coming to me. So I feel re-empowered to fight for this again. Everything Elena said, absolutely, a thousand percent, yes. I also want to spotlight an ask that regularly comes in, which is just for role play, like making space for role play. A lot of feedback that we get about learning content is not that what was covered wasn't impactful or that they weren't engaged. It was, well, what do I do now? <laughs> How do I apply it? And having been confronted with that, I spend a lot of time working with my collaborators on, well, how do we cover like the right amount of the content, but then build in enough time to practice it? That's its own sort of delicate balance, especially because the majority of our trainings, arguably all of them, they run virtual. So setting up a team's training to provide space for a role play where everyone can watch. Like you, you can't really do a fishbowl like you would if you're in person. You could send people into breakout rooms, but then as the facilitator, you can't provide feedback. And so it gets, it gets a little challenging in, in the virtual space. But nevertheless, we try and build that in as much as possible so that there is some room for immediate practice so they can take it with them. And then additionally, in order to help them know we're not just going to send them out with nothing, I do provide a lot of materials for after the fact. It's like, here's what you could say in these types of situations, right? Scripts that they can use to practice with. And that seems to be helping somewhat. But it also, it depends on the content. A lot of these examples I'm describing are for really people-focused kind of trainings where it's about those interpersonal skills. For technical things, that looks a little bit different. I think you have a lot more options in terms of tools that you can integrate, but also like building in the real time practice right there in the session. It's a little bit easier for those. Yeah, such good points. Making that time and space really for learners to practice applying what they've learned is so, so key. Well, Elena and Rachel, we've covered so much today. I think it would be really helpful if we could kind of end by giving our listeners maybe a concrete step or action or something they can do after listening to today's episode to begin supporting learner reinforcement. From my side, I think I would just ask them to keep it human. Remember, you're dealing with humans and look at how you can incorporate everything we know from science and neuroscience and performance into the learning environment. Don't spend as much time on the tools. Tools, there's plenty to choose from. Focus more on actually attacking the 
core challenges that we have in learning, right? And to Rachel's point earlier, people bring to work a lot of different baggage. They're dealing with a lot of different things. And remembering that, again, the human in the learning and creating a space in that environment and understanding and communication, (laughs) helping them learn. So go back to the human and make sure that you are catering to the right aspects of learning versus just creating awesome content, all of that. That's great. But don't forget the base of it all. I love that, right? Because we're a people first kind of profession, right? We're serving people. So keeping that at the focus point is like the true imperative. The other thing I'm thinking about too, for aiding that is if possible, putting out a pulse survey to see how teams are integrating learning. I did a version of this that served double duty for us. We wanted to see, A, how people were sourcing external trainings, because we have a lot of people who need continuing education credits, or there's certain types of service work that we conduct where there's local providers who put on free webinars and things like that. So we wanted to kind of get a handle on, well, where are people going? And to see which platforms they were using to communicate what they've learned. Back to that communication piece and peer-to-peer learning. So it helped us see a little bit of how teams were making time to learn, if at all, but also how they were sharing what they learned with one another through the communication platforms that we have available at this time. I think there's lots of different ways you could set that kind of pulse survey up, but making it a regular thing to send out I think could be really, really helpful for shaping the way we as L&D folks are planning to approach future programming, right? It can be a really helpful kind of assessment piece. I actually do want to add one more thing that I think is important is when you're taking a pulse and all those things that Rachel mentioned, also take a pulse of you as an organization. Are you actually creating processes and systems to help people access learning. And what I mean by that is that you can have all the learnings out there, but are you actually helping people create space in their days or are you packing their schedules, you know, with eight, 10, 12 hours of work as, as so often happens in tech. So where they don't even have, again, going back to the human, you've exhausted them. That you, there's no space for them to create that, to, to do that learning. And the other piece of that is how are you supporting your managers to make sure that they are not only learning and growing, because they're usually the forgotten group, especially the mid-level, the mid-manager, but how are you taking care of managers because they are your key to becoming a learning organization? On that note, Rachel and Elena, thank you both so much for sitting down with us today on the podcast. I know I learned a lot. And so thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience. How can our listeners get in touch with you after the episode if they'd like to reach out? I hang out on LinkedIn mostly. You'll see, you'll be flooded with content. So follow at your own <laughs> risk. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm just on LinkedIn. If anybody can just look me up, you'll find me. I'm the only Elena Agorigimova on there. Same. Yeah, my LinkedIn is regularly me sharing a variety of things, especially for nonprofit folks, but um, not exclusively. So feel free to look me up. Rachel Wallerstein, AIDS Foundation Chicago. Happy to always chat and especially help folks who are looking to revamp what training looks like for nonprofits in particular. To learn more about learning reinforcement, visit the show notes for this episode at trainingindustry.com slash training industry podcast. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. Leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.